hello. Welcome to Ami Tuckered Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel, and I'm with my co-host, Nazar. Co-host, indeed. Yeah, buddy, brother, hi. Buddy, brother, co-host, partners in crime, <laughs> whatever whatever you want to call it. We're, we're stuck with each other now. Well, uh, how you been doing? Good. Had an awesome interview uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. Do you, so we interviewed Simi Patel from Paper Did you end up getting any uh, merch? Oh, hell yeah. I got um, all the baby stuff, of course. Uh, of course I did. Uh, and got some gifts for, fr- for friends. So yeah, right away. So I actually ordered stuff while we were interviewing her. Because uh, nice. my, my, my wife's birthday was coming up. So I had gotten, the, the card said, your name's not Sunita, but happy birthday to you anyway. That was good. That was and good. Uh, we had, she had sort of a, a pajama party for with some friends for her birthday. So I had actually ordered, how perfect, that shirt that says, Majama in my pajama. That's which is awesome. was hilarious, and she's got yeah. the other stuff on there. We I um, going to be ordering a couple, like you said, gifts for friends. It's like yes. perfect. It's hilarious. I have since since that interview, I've had a ton of friends check her stuff out. So I'm very excited that same, we uh, same. talked to her. Um, and then who's our guest today, Nazar? I can't wait to talk with her. She's because you know me. I've been a film uh, student for as long as I can remember. Yes. And today, you actually locked down uh, somebody that I've been excited to talk to for weeks and weeks. Yes, uh, Miss Shruti Ganguly, who um, I worked with briefly, uh, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, um, and exclusively in. And um, Shruti, since then, has become a filmmaker based in New York City. She first started off her career working with, I don't know, James Franco, I'm sure you've heard of him, (laughs) and his Rabbit Bandini Productions Mm -hmm. on several movies, including Yosemite and The Color of Time, and has made a ton of feature films that have gone on to Sundance, Venice, Berlin, et cetera, on and on. I mean, she's worked with so many people because she went to NYU and yes. I can't wait to kind of pick her brain about that. Uh, but her, she herself, Shruti, I know she's worked on Nylon, MTV, Condé Nast. Yep. Uh, she, I didn't know this either, but doing research with you, she actually was one of the founding partners of Fictionless, which is a production company. And they've put up TV, uh, Emmy winning, Oscar winning uh, directors have worked on their projects. Ross Kaufman, Resham Nijan. And, and even now, she's working on things with like people like Keanu Reeves and even smaller projects, but nonetheless uh, meaningful to her. So I can't wait to talk to her about all that. And that's what I love about her. I, I mean, she's worked on big productions, and then she also loves you know, working on the documentaries about climate change and women's rights. And I mean, she, she's, she's not your typical director. You know, I, I feel like she is so much more than that. And such a, such a good human being with a big heart. Um, and she also has been a member of Obama's ECCO committee of entertainment leaders and is on the creative council for Emily's list. I mean, I feel like that's a tip of the iceberg with her. She produces more than anything else. So I'm kind of curious of how she actually found her way from writing and directing into now just like producing tons of content and, and TV series and I don't know if we'll get time, but she's even worked with uh, Rashida Jones on on stuff. So that'll be really cool to talk to her about. I feel like you'll be able to talk to her for like five hours. No, I mean, if she could give us five hours, that'd be pretty great. It would be pretty great. But either way, stay tuned. We'll be back with our interview with Shruti Granguli. Hi, Shruti. Hi. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So I was just telling Nazar, we met uh, through 
working with exclusively in. Yes. And the only thing I really remember is hanging out in New York and like, you know, having drinks and discussing life. There were probably a lot of drinks. There were a lot of drinks. And then I forgot, how did you how did you join exclusively in? What what was the deal? I mean, I wasn't really at exclusively in. I feel like I was kind of in the periphery of it. And I knew a couple of the founders. Well, obviously, Shivani Mehta, who's a very dear friend. Uh, then I got to know Anu Dugal, Avantika Dang was involved at the beginning. And then, you know, really, when Shivani was moving to Delhi, I think she, well, Shivani and I were roommates in New York before she went. And then I became her pseudo roommate in Delhi, so... Yes. So that was my connection. <laughs> okay. So yeah, so Nizar, that's how we met. And then since we have parted ways and, you know, Truthy has done some stuff, you know, a, a few things here and there. Um, and I'm in Arkansas. And so now we're connecting again after whatever, eight, nine years. A long, long time. A long time. Very cool. Yeah. So I just kind of wanted to start off talking about like your background and family because obviously that's very important. Um, I know your father is Bengali. He grew up in Delhi and your mom is uh, Anglo-Indian who grew up in Missouri. Just curious, how did they meet? My parents. So yeah. my my dad is Bengali from New Delhi, as you said, and my mom is half English, half Punjabi, but the part that is now in Pakistan. So my mom's Anglo-Indian and she grew up in Missouri primarily, but also lived in Nenital and in the hills. Um, although she was born in Jaipur. And so my mom used to go to New Delhi because and to visit her uncle, my grandmother's brother, and my uncle lived not far away from my dad. And so my dad, who was trying to be really cool and read a newspaper on their balcony, would actually constantly be like lowering his newspaper to catch a glimpse of my mom who was playing <laughs> badminton not too far away. That's and, awesome. you know, they met, I think, when they were 19 and they were together for about nine years before they got married. Okay. Wow. That's a long time, especially back in the day. Yeah. And so, and then you were brought up in Oman, went to boarding school in Missouri, and then obviously you're a New Yorker now. So you're kind of international girl of mystery. What do these places mean to you? Are they all kind of home to you? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting where I guess when people say, where am I from? I really struggle with that question because I say I'm from India, I grew up in Oman, and I live in New York. And so really it's this three-part identity. And with my boyfriend being Norwegian and in Norway, and now I have to spend more time there, I guess that will be the addition to it. And then the, the thing that got even more complicated last year was when my parents retired and moved to Delhi. And then somebody asked asked me, what is home? And that was a very tough question for me to answer because in my mind, home is still Oman because that's where I grew up. I think ultimately that notion of home is where some of your best memories are and it can travel and evolve and change because now that my parents have now built their home in New Delhi, I'm sure at some points I'll feel a connection there and say, Delhi is my home because that's where my parents are. Then I also, when I'm in India and people say, where's home? I say, home's New York. So it keeps yeah. changing. I agree with you. I think I'm even feeling like Arkansas is home now. It's only been like four months, but I think it's whatever you are at the time, I guess. 
And then in terms of schooling, you were you went initially the good South Asian girl doing the economics and, and trying to be an investment banker. And you're smiling, I know. <laughs> it's a very common story with everyone that we've spoken yeah. with. Yeah. Um, and, and I can't imagine you being an investment banker at this point. But And then you were interning in media and advertising and kind of trying everything. How did your... South Asian parents feel about this? Were they totally <laughs> like freaking out? Like, what are you doing? So I really wanted to go to art school, but I was good at math and economics and just some of the other subjects. And for my parents, I don't think they really wanted me to be limited by something so specific and encouraged me to, you know, study economics. And as much as I really, you know, fought against that in a way when I reflect on it, I'm quite grateful for that rounded education, especially in undergrad. And I did really think that I was going to go into finance because growing up in Oman, we, at least me, I didn't necessarily know any family, friends, children who were working in the arts. A lot of them were in finance, consulting, of course, they were engineers and doctors. And, and so when I came to, I went to Northwestern and I started off with economics and fine art. And even before I went to Northwestern, I was so motivated. I even interned before college at the National Bank of Oman in retail and investment banking. And then the following summer, I was at Ernst & Young doing a consulting internship. And it's really when um, the, the thing that was really important or, you know, in my life that happened is that I was living vicariously through my cousin Pooja, who I had grown up with in Oman, and she had at that time moved back to India and was really building a career in the arts. And while I was making the arts my hobby, she yeah. really made it her priority. And so she had this astronomical rise, had her own show on Channel V at the time called What Women Want by the age of 19. And when I would turn on the television when I was back home, I could see her in commercials. I would see her, you know, just on television. And I was yeah. so excited because she was just doing it. And in a way, I felt because I was living through her, I was okay doing the thing I needed to do. And then when I was 19, I was a year younger than Pooja. When I was 19, I got a call from my father one morning saying that Pooja had been killed in a car accident with, you know, four of her other friends who were all really incredible artists. And they were just going out for a late night coffee and a drunk truck driver under this uh, overpass didn't see them. And that was that. And it was one of the most devastating things because, you know, I don't have a sister per se, like Pooja and I both had younger brothers. So I really looked to her as like my sister and my peer. And I had just spoken to her a few months prior. And so when when she passed, um, I was really in sorts and had to kind of navigate the next few days. And I remember going to the Times of India website, because here I am in Evanston, Illinois, could not be further away from my family. And I just remember seeing like the headline just online. And then through the day, it got, it went, got lowered. And then it was in a sidebar and then a below sidebar, and then it disappeared. And it's a very weird thing to see someone you're so close to um, who means the world to you um, become yesterday's news. And I, I just, you know, I think spent the next several months and year kind of navigating and kind of like 
getting going and really I then had this moment of realization where I was like she was so brave to come to terms with you know what she wanted to do what she loved doing and she was just doing it and I hadn't had that courage yet to let myself figure it out because I really thought I needed to follow what I was seeing amongst other peers that seemed like I'm coming to college in America you know I know my parents you know super grateful to them are paying for this education and therefore it has to be worth the value and then I started to take classes that seemed interesting that I connected with um, in English literature you know and a whole range of uh, different subjects and ultimately I actually changed majors and did communication studies and fine art with a business minor and the class and then my internships also started to change I then worked at Reuters and Newswire and journalism and then the following year in advertising but the class that really did it which I think was really important to me was I there was a visiting professor from Bombay Vrinda yeah. Nabar who was teaching a class called women in Indian cinema and growing up in Oman I had watched I really didn't love Bollywood movies I didn't really at the time now I have great romance you know like I really now reflect on them and think they're quite exceptional but at the time I really didn't connect with films um, beyond something that was just entertaining and you would just go watch it with your family and it was fun but when I took this class the first film that the professor showed was Satyajit Ray's Bathar Panchali and it was the first time I suddenly felt like this medium had everything that I loved. It had art and music and movement and life and culture and specificity and it had all these things and it was like this eureka moment you know where I was like that's it I know what I want to do I don't know how the fuck to do it I don't know anyone <laughs> I don't know anything about you know I don't know how to do it I don't know anything about this medium I don't really know too many people in it and then you know at the time I I did have one friend family friend who was in India making a film and what, what year was this Shruti this was in 2003 okay 2003 so 15 years ago and I had this one friend who was going to make this film and I had done some theater and she really wanted me to act in it. But to be honest, when I went to Northwestern, which had such a strong theater program, I was so turned off by theater majors that I never wanted to act. <laughs> but my friend Ruchi Narayan was like, I need you to be in this film. And I was like, actually, I don't really want to act in it, but can I learn on it? And yeah. so I spent the fall of my senior year creating an independent study project and going to India for three months. And frankly, I don't even think that was necessarily allowed. But somehow I got away with it. Just don't tell Northwestern. But sorry, Northwestern, but thank you. We love you. I'm sure they're fine with it now, Shruti. I'm yeah, sure yeah. It's no, it's fine. Yeah. They have my face on the alumni wall, so I think it's okay. <laughs> but I went to Bombay and I, you know, my family's not really from Bombay. So not only was it about learning a new industry and learning about what a set looks like or how things work, but also an entirely new city. And so yeah. I think... What I learned from my cousin's passing was allowing myself to actually just learn, which I think has been something that I keep applying and I'm very conscious of. And even now, you know, having had like career, not a hobby in the arts, yeah, I can say that that feeling of constantly learning and being curious and figuring things out and 
making decisions based on trying things. Always being a student, basically. Yeah. So this was those the three months you were in Bombay. That was when you interned in Bollywood、mm-hmm. before you Bollywood and independent film. So I the、okay. first movie I learned on was Chameli, and then the second film was a film called Kal that Ruchi、okay. was directing, and that was an independent film. So learning meaning were you kind of doing different roles? Were you like getting chai? I was in the AD department. No,、okay. no, I would never. I would be so bad at. Making the chai that I would be fired on the first day, and on Indian film sets, the chai guy, the chai wala, is so important. I, yeah, exactly. Of course, of course. <laughs> okay, so then after your India stint、uh, and Northwestern, was it New York right after that? Was it Tish and Stern? Yeah, no. I mean, so I came back. I, you know, I was in Bombay. I got credit. I came back to Northwestern. I now knew what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to do it. Okay. And then I graduated and. My parents were obviously at that point like, "What are you doing?" And I was a nightmare to any recruiter, because you looked at my resume and it said, you know, National Bank of Oman, Ernst and Young, Reuters, Kramer Krasil, movie production. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a different understanding now. I was gonna say now it's like a goldmine. Yeah, but、sure. at the time, I can tell you. Nobody knew what I wanted to do, and I knew it. But the interesting thing is, I was trying things, and I think I didn't realize I was doing a process of elimination. Yeah, in my、sure. life. But then I moved to New York because I had interned in New York at Reuters, and I knew it better. And my first internship here was I somehow through like friends, friends, and I was trying to figure it out. Got a job. Interning at Island Def Jam at the record label. Nice, cool. And、um, it was a really interesting time in 2004. Jay Z had just become the president. I worked on the Def Jam side of things in a division called New Media,、okay. which is now digital. But、yeah. it's amazing how it was called New. And they, this was also a few years after 9/11. So getting、yeah. your visa sponsored in the arts was a whole other story. So now here I was in New York, knowing what I wanted to do, but now I just didn't know how to do it. Universal Music. Which owned Island Def Jam had changed their visa policies, and no, they weren't sponsoring people fresh out of school. So then I began my next big ride of like, how do I stay in the country? Do I stay in the country? So you know, I was at Island Def Jam for three months, and they couldn't sponsor me. Then I went to a hedge fund,、um, and then they couldn't sponsor me. And then I went to, I somehow got a job at HBO in this rotation program, and my visa, my student. Visa, my OPT was running out, and、uh, Time Warner. So I was at HBO, and I was working for these two Crave directors, and then they gave me a job offer, and they were going、okay. to sponsor my visa, and、nice. I was thrilled. And then we realized that there was a gap between when my OPT ended and when my H one B would start, so、wow. they retracted my offer. We gotta do a whole podcast on visas, by the way. This is so interesting.、Anyways. Oh my god, I can write the most boring book about visas. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised how many times our guests have talked about visa issues, and I'm like, me and Nazar are like, we need to do something on this. Yeah, I had to leave HBO, and in the meantime, I was working. You know, and I remember I was so after a year of the doors being shut in my face, I was so happy to have this amazing opportunity. And I remember sitting in a dark room doing a six feet under special, just like with hot tears on my face, just feeling really quite hopeless. And at the time, I started to volunteer with this and consult with this nonprofit. 
called A Leg to Stand On that had a very big fundraiser that involved music and hedge funds. And so in a way, my experience was really connected to it. And I knew the founder through a family friend. And I ultimately was able, they wanted me to work with them also. And I was able to convince them to sponsor my visa and that I would work for them. So I ended up actually working in the nonprofit space in New York for three years. You have literally hit all industries at this point. Yeah, dude. <laughs> like, I, I just, I just haven't ever been a scientist. So, <laughs> but yeah. So then I worked for this nonprofit, and in the meantime, picked up a camera and started to direct things. And the first thing I directed, which was a spoof music video with some friends, ended up going viral by simply being on. AOL and Yahoo. That's how long ago this was. It's like AOL. Nice. So that's, you know, when you hit virality by being on those platforms and the Wall Street Journal and NBC.com, like that's just a different era. I was like, I learned to edit making that video and it made these Insta celebs of my friends. And then I felt like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. And then I made another like spoof thing while I had my other job. Um, and that also got a lot of press and attention. And so I always had my other job that kept me in the country and was making things. And I would go to coffee shops and write over the weekend. I worked at a, I was, I hostess at a restaurant because I was interested in developing stories about the restaurant industry. And so I needed to do research. So I was immersed in it. And so it was really such a hodgepodge of things. And my parents were obviously having a full, like they could not understand. <laughs> Do they know everything that you were doing exactly? Or were they, you were just kind of like, well, I'm fine. Don't I worry. mean, my dad, like I, you know, I must admit that even on my nonprofit salary, I did have to get some support from my family, which I'm very grateful for because otherwise I really couldn't have been in New York. Yeah. But, I mean, if I was able to actually work, I was also dealing with visa stuff. So ultimately I ended up, Finally, in 2008, so I ended up working at Nylon at the media company when they still had a magazine, and I was brought on as the Nylon TV producer, and this was the first time my day job, my job was actually making things in terms of video and moving picture, and that so I, I, and I loved it. And also the other thing is while I had one of my nonprofit jobs, um, Karen Johar was making a movie in New York called Kabi Alveda Nalkena. Mm -hmm. And I met the line producer and I asked if I could work with her and she's like, you know, I need an assistant. And I was like, okay, I'll be your assistant. And then I learned very quickly that I'm a really bad assistant. <laughs> and <laughs> so no Jaiwala, no assistant. Just also know what you're bad at. Yes. Very important. So I then, um, you know, I, I told I told Anna Del Hussein and Dries Benyukov, who were line producers here, I was like, can I please do all the product placement in the film and work with the brands? And they were like, sure, whatever that means, really. And essentially, I was cold calling major companies and was able to convince quite a few of them. So I got Pepsi, Apple, Samsung. Nike was involved, Armani, and it was this really amazing thing that I was like, all right, well, and it's funny because I'm very close to Anadil Dilly, and we always laugh where I, I say, you were my best boss and I was your worst assistant. Also, I, I wasn't coming from like that traditional, like I've studied film, I have that movie experience, I have that network in New York, so maybe 
it was different. I was just really hungry to just do something and I didn't want to be seated in an office and answer yeah. emails for somebody yeah. uh, or pick up the phone for somebody else. And anyway, so then when I was at Nylon years later, I was finally also making things and I had made this decision to go to grad school. I had been at Nylon for about a year, but I had made this decision that I wanted to go to grad school. I wanted to get an MBA. Do you feel like you want to do this because we are South Asian and it's kind of expected? I don't know. I think maybe there is that, but I just also know a lot of friends, family friends who have whose kids have MBAs who I really look up to. Yeah. So yeah. it's one of those things that you just see how well they're also doing by having that advanced degree. Yeah. I don't think my parents necessarily cared for me to have my MBA, but I really wanted to get my MFA as well. Yeah. I really wanted to go to film school and really have a proper training and understanding of how things get written, developed, and made. And then NYU had a new program. And it was this dual degree where you could do an MBA and an MFA. And so I knew I had to apply for it. And I was so grateful when I got in because it has been one of the best decisions but I really had to think about it because I got in and I here I was having like the job that I finally wanted. I was getting paid well. My visa was taken care of. And now I would go back to grad school and I would have no income. I would go back on a student visa. I would, you know, I would lose the cachet of being in media and making yeah. these things that were so exciting. And I was, it was developing, a big sacrifice. And I was developing, you know, like I, you know, Florence and the Machine. I did her first video in you in America. No way. I was working with the most incredible people, discovering them, making yeah. really fun things, and you know, was like becoming friends with a lot of the people I was filming. I'd made like two over two hundred videos in one year, and it was a tough decision to go to grad school and switch gears at 27 and I decided to take that dive and I would say that my friend Smriti Mundra who's an amazing filmmaker and my brother were the people that really convinced me. He just graduated too, right? And I he just something. finished. He yeah. also just finished a double master. So I think between the two of us my parents are like no more school. Yeah. I was like I think your parents have something to be proud about. I just saw your IG post. So I was like that's amazing. Yeah. No, it's it's very I I'm super proud of him and he's so smart and than NYU and yeah. I remember like walking into business school and I had like you know I looked like I had just worked at nylon I had a headband some colorful clothing I wasn't in a business suit I was gonna ask you how did you feel about going to business school I mean the MFA obviously but it took me a moment I really didn't like it at first yeah and the way my program was divided at the time was that we were in business school for one year we had summer school a at the film school and then we were in film school the second year and our third year was divided up and then you could take a couple of years to do your thesis film okay so it was three years of classes and the first few months of business school I really was like I can't believe this and nylon had also said anytime you want to come back and I remember getting a an email saying that I had won some scholarship and I was like and I got an email from the admissions office with that information, and I said, "I, there, it's impossible. I didn't apply. There must be another Shruti Ganguly. And they said, no, no, you need to come up to the office so we can tell you about it. And I essentially got this Kenshin Oshima fellowship and scholarship where they picked two incoming first years 
as their most promising students and and as a part of our fellowship i mean they covered the entire second semester of tuition and they also brought, took us to japan to meet the family and to wait you had no idea that no so everybody i guess everybody in the first year was eligible and it was for anybody who also had like a vested interest in Asia, but it's not even like I announced that or did anything. And But I remember when I got that email, I remember exactly where I was sitting and the taste of the really bad coffee I was having in the cafe <laughs> when I got that email and I was like, you have the wrong person. And they're like, no, this is not a mistake. And and that was when something changed for me and I was felt really encouraged and I was like, well, shit, I just got, to, I was thinking about dropping out. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute. But I just got selected for this thing. So like, maybe crap. this is not so bad. <laughs> yeah. And and so that really kind of changed my perspective and my um, attitude towards school. And I really started to enjoy it in a different way and make more of an effort as well. And, and then I was in the following semester, I interned at IMAX and then had summer school, then we went to the film program. And, you know, I interned for another producer the following year. And in the meantime, I started working with James Franco, yep. who was a year ahead of me. And he was like, you, do you want to be my TA? I'm teaching a class that we're trying to figure out and it's ad adapting poetry for the screen. And so that was my third year. And in the meantime, the dual degrees got another fellowship, so we had another semester paid for. So it was really nice, I think. I, I yeah. felt better about being in school. Yeah. And then anyway, then I started working with, with James and produced a couple of features while I was in school, and I ended up graduating within three years. And I actually didn't realize or think that I would end up producing as much as I ended up producing. What was your kind of goal before, I mean, I know you obviously you produce, but were you always wanting to be a director or did that just happen naturally? Yeah, I always wanted to be a director, but I also really love producing. Yeah. And I remember even going for my interview at NYU and I said that I want to produce and direct. And the thing I kept hearing was like, you can't do both. And it's so interesting because even a few years ago, you know, essentially while I was working with James, I and when I graduated he wanted me to move to LA and work with him on projects there, but I wanted to stay in New York. And I ended up taking a job at MTV at, uh, to kind of revitalize the third iteration of MTV Daisy. Yes, I remember that. And actually, so seriously, I had a quick question on that. Why, why not LA? I mean, I know we all love New York, of course, but you know, LA is Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't really been to LA. I didn't know it, and I was already working in something I really didn't know enough about. And there was something about the comfort level of New York. I did visit LA. Um, while, I mean, I'd been to LA for work with Nylon, and I really was considering it. I would say at one point I was like 90% moving, and then I got there, and, um, you know, really, I was even looking at apartments and was in a cafe and I was having a conversation with a friend and then I heard the exact same conversation just repeated across all the other tables. And I was like, oh my God, everyone works in the same industry as me, yeah. which is one of the best parts about LA. But also for me, I really like that I have some space from it in New York and that there's a greater range of you know, industries. And of course, LA has that you have to seek it out a little bit more. 
I'd say that if I probably was in an entertainment, I'd like it more. But I mean, I do, you know, I go there often. Of I course. really like it. But there's something about New York that just makes me feel like very connected with the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the thing that LA has going for it that I really like is that it's in California. Yes. Not a bad state. But yeah, so then I really, um, I went to MTV and I was essentially developing and finding new talent and voices and, you know, got produced the first Sweatshop Boys music video with Riz Ahmed, Himanshu Suri, who are very close friends, to doing a whole bunch of sketches. And now those people have shows on TBS. And it was so fun. Yeah. I remember telling my boss, I just got off the phone with this girl, Lily Singh, and I have a feeling that, you know, and she wants, we want to do something together. We just talked about it. And I have a feeling she's really going to go places. And he's like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> so no. So, yeah, know she is. but it was a really amazing, inspiring time. I just think that the division at the time was like, there was a real lack of direction and our budgets were changing. And in the meantime, I was making films that were going to Venice and so on. This and was that- an what 2009 10 so i was in grad school from 2009 to 2012 and then this was 2012 to the top of 2014 okay and so really quick so when you were starting off in 2004 2003 and and working your way up to grad school did you see a lot of south asians around you or or did it just all of a sudden was all of a sudden a boom and and you started meeting uh the south asians that kind of were in the industry as well i mean it's interesting because um, I wasn't necessarily seeking out South Asians. I was like aware. I mean, I was involved with, You're this, aware. with the all yeah. with the film festivals and the cultural scene in New York. But in grad school itself, there weren't so many of us. Yeah. Um, but the amazing thing with grad school, it's such a melting pot of culture. And that was really amazing. You did a lot of shorts and you produced a lot. You did a lot of 80 work uh, in school with other projects of, of, I assume, people that you knew. The first kind of big project that you produced on and wrote on, it looks like, was... Color of Time with James Franco. Yes. So tell me, tell me about that because you shot all that on digital, and I assume that saved you so much money. Yeah, I mean, there is this. I mean, films can get made for much less money now, and at the time, I mean, The Color of Time was a student project. We were developing it in school, and what was meant to be ten individual shorts based on this one collection of poetry. ended up being crafted as episodes of one feature, telling the story of this poet's life through his work. And so we worked very closely with the poet C.K. Williams as we were developing the scripts and realizing the material. And we then went to film in Detroit. I was making this the third year of grad school, and we had two and a half weeks to do it. I remember telling, you know, we had that production period from Tish, but I remember having to tell my Stern teachers that, I'm sorry, I'm going to be missing like a week or two weeks of class because I'm making a movie in Michigan. And they were like, "Uh, okay. So I was still doing papers. I was doing homework when I was on set because I had to. And I, because I had group projects. And so I couldn't drop the ball on those things. So I was still very much in business school. Although even on, you know, on that production, the budget was so low that because now I was hiring a team in Michigan. It was like the first film I was producing. We had a low budget and we had 12 directors. I ended up driving one of the equipment trucks from New York to Detroit 
Um, but then I learned what hydroplaning was when it happened to me. Oh, I'd like my a freak God. snowstorm. But luckily, we ended up being okay. We ended up going off the side of the highway because nothing we could do about it. And wow. luckily, we were all right. And I remember thinking, that is either the worst thing that's going to happen on this film so far, or it is just priming me for a tough shoot. And it yeah. was the latter. Yes. And I mean, I have a real special place in my heart for this, like, you know, you refer to your films as your children. So this was like a real wild child with a lot of spirit that I don't think anyone necessarily knew how to treat it, especially when it came to fruition. Because even though this was a, a biopic on a poet, it the film has James Franco, Mila Kunis, Jessica Chastain, Zach Braff, Henry Hopper, Bruce, Bruce Campbell, this incredible cast. Yeah. And so I think a lot of people expect it to have a very straightforward narrative. But yeah. it is a very poetic <laughs> film, and that's what it is. The first thing that came to mind when I saw this, they're very different subject material, but it has also Jessica Chastain in common, but Tree of Life, Malik's Tree of Life came to mind because you have these very, not meandering, but these very contemplative moments throughout the movie. And Malik loves to do that. So I assume it, it, it had to come from the top down and with all these directors choosing to do different segments in different ways. But you kind of had that connective tissue throughout. Well, the way that we were also able to build a creative connection is that we workshopped all the scripts together. So we were in constant communication in terms of themes and characters that were repeating. And we had we kind of divided everyone up into two groups. So we had two cinematographers we had two line producers, you know, who worked with the different directors, but we had one production designer. We had one yeah. costume designer. I mean, they had their teams, but they were unifying the film visually. And those were conversations that, I mean, you don't make a film without having a conversation with each other. And in many ways, The Color of Time, like, is a real lesson in how we communicate. Um, and so I don't think when, the, when we finished the film, and we premiered at the Rome Film Festival and got James got an award there. I don't think people necessarily knew. Well, actually, the film got an award there. I don't think people necessarily knew how to, how to think of the film. I remember when it was coming out, we did a screening at the Bowery Poetry Club, and people were like, this is amazing. This is the truest way to communicate with poetry. But then our reviews are awful and I think when you have like that big a cast also there's a need for it to be really straightforward but then for the poets who see the film it is a testament to the way poetry should be adapted for the screen I agree. Yeah. and I mean Terrence Malick is definitely a great reference and we were definitely very you know inspired by him and lots of other filmmakers but I think one of the criticisms we got with that was that this was like the student version of Mallet. Yeah. And it, the yeah. irony is that like the directors of that piece have gone on to direct so many other films. Oh yeah. So I know, I know we're short on time and Shruti has an insane resume here that I want to hit on a few things. First, I really quickly want to talk about fictionless. Cause I know you're a founding partner. How did that feel to you to find your own production company? So after, after MTV, I ended up going to Condé Nast and was brought on to rethink the content for Vogue and started a series there called 73 Questions. You know, really loved working with Vogue specifically. And then I did some projects with Vanity Fair and Wired that were mostly celebrity focused because I was also a filmmaker who was making movies with other actors. And so I wasn't just a video person. So there was like a different understanding of how we would work. And from there... 
I went to Nylon again as their vice president of TV and video. And the founders of Nylon had been ousted. It was like really changing and it was a tough decision to even go there. But when I resigned from Condé, I was really figuring out what I wanted to do. And we, a couple of friends from MTV, we were talking about starting something together. And I then decided, you know, at that point I was being pursued by Hearst and Nylon kind of came back again and it was new management and with the promise of like there being all this funding and I was going to build a team and so on. And I decided to, instead of going to another big company, I'd go to Nylon because I loved what that brand was built on and it was newness. So went to Nylon. In the meantime, Fictionless was starting with my former partners, Ray and Ross, really being there on the ground. And then when I was at Nylon, I found myself still in a place where it was a two-person team. We were still making things and it turns out they just did not have any money left. And I remember I was on a press trip in Chicago and I got a call from my boss saying that there were layoffs and I was going to be laid off. A third of the company was laid off. And I, I just remember working like so hard every day, the best way I could, given very small budgets. I was told I was at you know, a five-person team and so on. And I found myself many years later, now two master's degrees, all these films. And I was on a press trip and I was on a bus at the time, seated between a friend from the New York Times and my friend Spencer Bailey, who was the editor-in-chief of Surface Magazine at the time. And I remember just getting off the phone and like just being really quite numb by it, being like, just really trying to understand. Yeah, it's not what you expect. Yeah. And then my boss had you know called me later and was like, I have loved working with you and any help you need. And I was like, I don't need your help. I'm going to be okay. But what I want you to do is since, and I wasn't cheap. I know that because I negotiated, you know, as much as I could get out of it because those were some of the things I had been learning. Yeah. Um, I had learned that lesson from Condé Nast. So, and I, you know, I was like, I have to get paid my worth. And so I really look at, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, when someone gets fired and when someone gets laid off. And in this case, it's not because I wasn't doing my job. They couldn't afford me. Yeah. And a third of the company was let go and it was evolving. And I remember at the time, my, I, like they, uh, Northwestern had built a new alumni center and they had my face on the wall between Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago and Seth Meyers. And like Julia Louis-Dreyfus is like a stone throw away. And I was like, I went to the center. I'd just been laid off and I went to see it and was like, Okay, well, <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> and I was in Chicago for an architectural press trip. And I remember thinking, like, really, buildings withstand this test of time. And there are hurricanes and weather. And they just kind of stand. And they still hold their ground. And I, it was like a weird, like, new mantra for me. Where I was like, yeah. be like a building. But... That's true, though. <laughs> or a tree. Or a tree. Like a tree gets chopped down sometimes. But still. But it was an important time because I feel like I, and I'm happy to talk about the things that become difficult. And, you know, at that time decided to focus on fictionless, went back and was bringing in new business and clients and growing it out. And then last year made the very tough decision to leave. And the origin story had changed of the company. The direction was different. There were lots of reasons to do that. And it definitely impacted you know, the relationship, you know, with the partners and I had, I had to do it. And 
it was that I would say was the hardest thing, especially with, with close friends. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and so I think that, you know, I launched my company not cause I, I'm not this person who's like, I'm so excited to be an entrepreneur. I have a company and that's cool. And I'm a female founder. I don't care about yeah. that. I like making things with my friends and yeah. growing with them. And if we, and when we get paid, it is extra awesome. Exactly. So I think that that's my attitude. And so I started the company producing a film with Keanu Reeves that we'd been developing for a while called Green Dolphin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that was the first thing. And then. And this is through Honto 88? That's Honto 88. And then the fall of last year. And, and you know, it's interesting that I was starting this company and people were like, we want to partner with you and so on. And I was like, I can't. Yeah. And the hardest decision for yourself is like when you are starting something. I had to have the space and time finally to be like, what do I want to do? And one of the things that had a big influence on me was that I was on a committee for the Obama administration a few years prior where they had brought this group together of like 30 people in media and entertainment that they thought, you know, were making things that could change perspective. And it was the first time I was also really much more educated about the kind of responsibility as, that creators need to have, which was really starting to affect how I was working and yeah. what I was working on. And so that really is the foundation for Hantu 88. What did you take away from that? What was amazing was like going to the White House for meetings and meeting some of the Obama staff who focused on, you know, the Big Brother program to the projects around like prison reform and gun reform, women and girls' rights, especially women in tech. I mean, essentially, they were like, these have been the things that have mattered to this administration. We do not know which way it's going, but the way that change can happen in this world is through what we put out in our culture. But, you know, and these have been the things that have mattered. Climate change, women and girls' rights, gun reform, prison reform, etc. Like all the things, you know, immigration, all the things that if you are a decent human being and you're willing to have, you know, the uncomfortable big conversations, you are suddenly a lot more aware of. And so... That, you know, was a pretty life-changing experience. And, but I would tell you that like this time last year, I was not in the best of places because I just started this company, was really trying to navigate it, was like feeling super defeated that I'd put in all my effort into something else and I couldn't be there anymore. And now I had to do this again, you know, with my assistant at the time. And like, you know, like it was like Jerry Maguire moment and was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I, at one point, you know, and all these projects were supposed to come through and they didn't. And I was like, how have I done so much stuff? I worked with all these people. My social media also says something else. And I was really not, you know, you know, quite depressed. I was like, I'm broke. I'm depressed. I'm living through my savings. It's like you're starting over again. Yeah. And um, my boyfriend was in New York at the time. And I think he's the only person who saw it because he would see me crying on our couch. Just... And I don't think I necessarily shared it with my friends because I didn't necessarily know how to talk about it. I'm a pretty positive person and that's my attitude in general. But I was really in a place where I was like rethinking everything. And I was like, maybe I just need to go. My parents have just moved to India. Like there were a lot of things that were changing. You know, Oman was no longer going to be home in terms of home base. Yeah. Uh, They're moving back to India. I left this thing that I helped build up. And, you know, I think at the time I was like, you know, for a few months, I was really like 
you know, at odds, but I was still waking up in the morning and going to work and like making things and being like, it was not easy at all. And then suddenly, I mean, I think when you're like really at the bottom of the ocean, you're like, how, how do you get up? You know, sometimes like, it, I don't know, it's like this weird thing. And then suddenly I got a call about something. Then I got a call about something else. Yeah. And then I finally went home to India uh, over December. And I was like, let me write down. I know I'm focused on all the negative stuff. Why don't I write down all the things that I actually did do? Which is a lot. And I was like, I started a company. I know what the company stands for and what the company is going to do. I started this resistance revival chorus with my friends from the Women's March, which is suddenly becoming a thing. And then in the meantime, I was having like a salon with my friends Rizama and Manchusuri for South Asian creators and was suddenly like seeing that conversation really change. Then I had also contributed a story to a book that was going to be published by Penguin the following year, which just came out. Yes. So the, and, and so I just started to tally the things that despite really having my foundation shaken again that had, were coming out of it, except I hadn't had a moment to reflect to on think. it. I mean, my parents, you know, at that point were also like, you know, my dad was like, Truths, if you need to take a moment, and my boyfriend also, I mean, he was so encouraging and I'm so grateful to him because he was like, I know you can do it. You are going to do it. It's going to be fine. And that's what you need around you. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, now when I really think about it a year later, I'm like, wow, I was in such a different place. And, you know, I just directed a film for Planned Parenthood a few days ago, which was incredibly rewarding. I'm directing a feature in April. And we have, we have TV shows. We have so much video stuff yeah. that we're doing. We just did Jill Stewart's new campaign. We're working. And yeah. I have an amazing team of young, dynamic filmmakers who happen to be women who, you know, are so impressive every day. But it was a really interesting thing. And, like, going back to that, like, whole story about, like, my cousin, you know, about, like, I got to learn. Sometimes you, you focus on, like, the learning just on, like, the subject. But you also learn more about yourself every time you're, you face some type of adversity. Yeah. Adversity. Well, look, I think it's really great to hear your ups and downs. Obviously, you know, you're very successful. You've done all these amazing things. But it would be odd if you didn't have any quote unquote failure, uh, not failures, but, you know. Oh, yeah. There's a whole setbacks. reality that people tend to forget when they look at people's success stories. It's like, no, it wasn't all an ascension. It was definitely a bumpy road. And it wasn't all 10 years ago. You were saying even last year you went through it again, you know, and, and we all go through these cycles and it's normal. Um, yeah, I mean, so, something it. will happen again. I mean, yes, I, I think I'm just getting I, I just am like. You know, I'll be ready for it when it yeah. happens. Even when you're not ready for it, because I wasn't ready for a lot of things. It's really about, I mean, there, there, are two, there are two analogies that I really use when it comes to like being, at least for me. And in a way, they're both like sports and activities related. Like I feel like life is like, at least for me, it's like playing a long game of golf. And I'm not competitive with other people but I'm competitive with myself where I'm like, I just have to keep getting better. And so yeah. like with golf, you can go play with your friends, but it ultimately it's about you. Yep. It's about your capability and your determination to keep getting better. And so that's been very important because it's, you know, we work in competitive industries and 
especially sometimes with women where we need to support each other and lift each other up. And I've encountered several times where that hasn't been the case. Yep. Same here. And my attitude in general is like, you stay in your own lane. And by just simply running, we're just all running further. There's room for everyone. Yeah. Everyone can run. Yeah, exactly. And so really I use golf to like really just explain my attitude. But then I really talk about like, you know, like I really feel like so much of, so much of like navigating things is like surfing like you're you never know what size the wave is going to be and i would say that this time last year like i had definitely fallen off the board and i was like at the depths of the ocean just looking up and just trying to figure out like how i was going to swim up yeah. because i didn't know if i could and you know and, and now the wave's not too bad yeah nice. that's amazing it's a good way to look at it and so now I know you're doing a bunch of things. I was just I was looking at uh, nevertheless we persisted. You contributed an essay to it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Nevertheless, they persisted is a book which essentially is a collection of essays by various artists, activists, athletes, politicians, and so on, really about moments in their teenage years where they encountered some type of profound situation that they had to overcome and work through and I must admit that it really took me a while to figure out what my story was going to be because I think sometimes these memories you try and erase and I was like oh I've had such a great childhood I didn't have any of these things and then instead of thinking of a memory I had to really reflect on a feeling yes and it was when I kind of tapped into that that I remember the story very clearly that I wanted to write about and so it was such a privilege to be a part of this collection of stories that Penguin Random House has put out. And a very close friend of mine who's in Hong Kong was like, I'm in a bookstore and your book is here. Now, it's it felt also really funny for me to do a signing when it's an anthology and there's so many other voices. Yes. And suddenly my friends are like, oh my God, you wrote a book. I'm like, no guys, I wrote one <laughs> essay. One essay, but I really loved it and I do love writing and I've been writing a lot, so who knows? I think this won't be my last book signing. Good. You've had a, and you've also had a few pieces with El India. We uh, we interviewed her as well. Oh, cool, uh, Supriya. Yeah, Supriya, yeah, yep. Dravid. We interviewed yeah. her a couple of months ago, right? Was yeah. uh-huh. She was great. She yeah. awesome. I mean, what I love about what she's done with El India is it's not just a fashion magazine; it's a culture magazine yeah. that is very thoughtful and artistic and poetic and it's really she's done an exceptional job and i think that her coming from that literary perspective has been really amazing quickly working in bollywood and then working in the states on film how different is it i mean they're massively different working between bollywood and hollywood but i think the conversations are similar on a very specific level when i was in the ad department in india you're an ad to become a director in the States, you're an AD and you become a producer. So there are different understandings even in terms of like what the roles, you know, how they develop. Yeah. So um, I would say that I think that there are greater checks and balances that are being applied to both. The Me Too movement, which really started on this side of the ocean has definitely now hit India and you're seeing a lot more stuff kind of come up there and companies dissolve which has been really interesting to witness and I think it's really important that the both that both industries can learn the best things from each other yes that there is at least in Hollywood you're seeing more representation on the screen you know in terms of like what the world looks like in 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 on in Indian films 
Um, you're seeing more conversations around different social justice issues kind of be crafted into more mainstream stories. Sure. And I think that's really important. I think everyone's just getting wiser yeah. and can't make things in the same way. No, definitely. Um, and then in terms of nonprofits, I think you're working with Commit to Change? Yes. Is that is that one of them? Okay. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? So I'm on the board of this organization called Commit to Change, which essentially supports orphan girls' education in India and supports pre-existing programs like Seva Southern Society in Bombay and Salam Balak Trust in New Delhi and other programs around the country. And I just directed their film for them, and I was in Delhi on the ground and in Bombay, and it was so amazing I mean, this is one of the best parts about being a filmmaker is being on location and being immersed in these worlds and being able to have the the honor of telling these stories in the right way. And so I feel like even though I was on the board, I've been on the board and I've supported it, this was my real contribution was, um, you know, being the filmmaker to tell this story and they've been really yeah. happy with it. And so apparently some people have cried while watching it. So I'm like, that's good. Nice. It's already, so it's already out. So yes, so it's coming okay. out very soon. Very excited. Okay. And so, that, so that goes into my next question. Current projects or what should we look for? What, what are you working on? I just directed a film for Planned Parenthood, which has original dance, poetry, and music for it. And so really it was a co combination of all these art forms. And I am so excited about it yes. because obviously I love what Planned Parenthood does for women's health and it's so important now to support organizations that are doing good work. Especially and, now. You know, it's like, <laughs> yes. so I, I really was able to push myself artistically and work with people who are just so amazing to collaborate with. And who just let, like, I'm still feeling inspired coming off of that shoot. Then we were able to do Jill Stewart's new campaign. And I'm excited for that to come out in a few months. I was in Sri Lanka directing a project for Thinks and was in the factories talking to the women and the team in terms of their backstory and their product and so on. And so, I mean, I just am so excited to be making stuff with my team and we're growing artistically in terms of our scope, in terms of our clients. We have a slate of films and television shows and we're working with people we're really excited about. Yeah, That's awesome. Nothing to complain about there. <laughs> get to know Shruti segment. What is the one thing you're trying to change about yourself? A few things. Um, to be kinder to myself and allow myself to like not have answers even more because I think I was a little tough on myself in terms of a set of expectations, especially last year when I was starting a new company. I was like, oh, I should be all the way up here. But when you start something, you really are starting again and starting over. And I wasn't patient enough with myself. I would say that... I would love to know when to say no more, but I'm starting to get better at it. And I think when you start a new company, you say yes a lot, but now we say no a lot to projects that don't feel like they're in line with our spirit vision. and vision. Um, and I would say the thing that I would love to be better at is, you know, and I learned this from my boyfriend a lot is being present and not being on my phone. I mean, at meal times we are not on our phones. That is just a rule. And I think like having more social media breaks and having the space to really be out in nature and connect with the, the basics is really important. I need to get better at that. 
well, come to Arkansas because right? it's very naturey here. <laughs> right. I promise you. What is your favorite quote? Oh my gosh, I don't know why I just remembered this, and I can't even believe I did. Life isn't a matter of uh, life isn't a matter of milestones, but of moments. I like it, and I think that that is just something that it's by Rose Kennedy. I think it is essentially like you know I think you know. I don't look at like, oh, I've hit this milestone. My face is at the, in a Northwestern alumni center. I've like made these movies. I've gone to Sundance, Venice, blah, blah, blah. Like that, it's, it's nice to have that acknowledgement, but it's like in those moments that allow you to be very present um, and you keep learning. Like, I don't think I'm successful. I don't think I've made it. I just keep going. Yeah, you're just happy to create. Yeah. Yes, I like it. What do you do to unwind? I love listening to music and walking. And I, I, I see my friends a lot. I always make time for my friends and I love going to the movies. Although I guess watching movies is work. (laughs) What are some, what's something good that you've seen recently or that you'd recommend even? I saw a really amazing documentary called crime and punishment about the Mm -hmm. quota system and the NYPD. Yeah. I really loved, um, I love documentaries and I mean, I guess to unwind, it's like, honestly, when I'm with my boyfriend, we, and we're in Norway, we go for hikes and it's wonderful to be out in nature. Favorite location to shoot? Ethiopia. We'll have to get into that later. What is your favorite word? Um, really? <laughs> Honto. Honto. I like that one. <laughs> Who would you absolutely love to collaborate with that you haven't yet? It's so interesting because I'd love to work with some of my favorite directors, but I'm like, maybe I won't love them as directors anymore. <laughs> yeah, they say never, never meet your heroes, right? Yeah, yeah. I would love, that's such a good question, to work with Bjork. Ah, Awesome answer. She's so good. (laughs) What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Although I know you've done like 25. I've done so many. (laughs) If I had to do something else, furniture design. Why furniture design? Because she hasn't tried it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, after I went to that architectural trip, I just became so much more aware of design and culture and just how like these everyday objects can really become pieces of art. Yeah. yeah. And you can treat them with a different level of respect and like how a chair can just have take on so much more meaning. Yeah. Have a story. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> I think God would say, how'd you get here? <laughs> Or, you know, reincarnation. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. No, no, no. I think uh, it'd be like, you didn't do too bad. Pat on the back. You did okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, holy shit. Thank you so much, Shruti Ganguly, for coming on to talk with us. That was actually... That was, holy shit is right. I did not want that to end. I know she actually has to, like, do stuff. Yeah, she has a life. life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's slightly busy. I mean, you know, she's a few things going on, um, but I am so grateful she took out the time for us to chat uh, on our little podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's definitely a lot of stuff in there. We talked about it in the episode. People talk about, oh, you're doing such a great job. You've had such a big and illustrious career, even though she's pretty young. 
But there are a lot of speed bumps along the way, she, uh, hydroplaning along the way. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean. And I, you know, I, that's what I love about her is just honesty. It's not all about the, the glitz and glamour and all. I mean, obviously, she's done amazing things, but she was just real. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people look up to her and look up to her career. And I'm glad she was just open about it. And she, along with her production company, along with her team, is giving voice to a lot of uh, people that don't have any. And she yeah. talked about her projects in Ethiopia and, and doing with uh, orphans in India like that. You don't do those projects if you don't have the passion for it. And she definitely has the passion for it uh, and her nonprofit. So uh, hats off to her for all that. Yeah, just so many amazing things to look out for. I, I know there was a lot of info and, and talk during the interview so we will um kind of cliff note everything in our show notes yeah definitely and you can check her out on uh, insta if you want she's at shruti ria which is s-h-r-u-t-i-r-y-a and yep. uh, also check out her websites uh, like the other projects that she's working on honto88 is h-o-n-t-o-88.com and you'll see on there she's with her dream team of brilliant minds so definitely yeah. check her out we're gonna have to go to new york and follow her i think yeah, I think that's the I'd... best way to do it. Be her own paparazzi. Exactly. Give yeah. her chai. <laughs> can we can chai be her chai wallows, right? <laughs> yeah. We can do that. And also, don't forget to follow us. We're everywhere at Ami Tuckered Out. A-M-I-T-U-C-K-E-R-E-D-O-U-T. And also, you can follow me uh, personally at Nizar Babul, N-I-Z-A-R-B-A-B-U-L. Uh, email us your stories about uh, movies that you've seen recently. Give us some recommendations. Yeah, I mean, although I don't think you need it, Nizar. I think you should have your own blog on this. Yeah, oh, I, I have several. Don't worry about that. How do I not know this? Do I know you? <laughs> no, thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, as usual, we will have some amazing guests coming up in the next few weeks, so stay tuned. We love you guys. Thanks for listening. This is Ami Tuckered Out. Bye.